thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you with me. This podcast is being recorded the week of Thanksgiving, so I'm going to take a little bit of a different turning from the way we've normally approached things by looking strictly at matters really of law and government and public policy and the relation to Scripture to address something that I said last week gave me a great deal of encouragement that, to be honest, I believe many of us need in these days when it's so easy to be distressed and distraught over what all we see going on around us and with the sense that the elected leaders that we have don't know what to do or whatever it is they are doing isn't working. And in my experience over the last 20 years, many of the leaders of our churches don't know what to do either because, to be honest, they have not been discipled themselves in these areas of government and law. They're oftentimes very clueless, I hate to say it. And I get it because I grew up in evangelical, strong evangelical, Bible-believing churches, and I think I could have continued going to those churches the rest of my life, and I would not know anything that I share with you all on these podcasts about the nature of law, its relationship to civil government, how we should understand that, how should we work in that regard. It's just off the radar screen. In fact, I was talking with someone uh, the other day who, who said, you know, the Bible doesn't really get into politics. And I thought, well, wait a minute, wasn't that a trial of Jesus before Pilate? Wasn't that sort of a governor person? And didn't he speak to him about the nature of authority and where it came from and the authority that Pilate had, which was namely none except God had given it to him? Is that not a discussion in the nature of politics? You see, this person is so, so caught up, I guess, in matters of soteriology that they can't apply that, that trial, that public event and the confrontation of Jesus to this ruler. And, and so for, for those of you out there who care about this sphere, I can see where, where you, like me, would be distressed, disconsolate, and frustrated. I've expressed that in some of my commentaries. If, you, if, if you're not from Tennessee and you want to read a couple of them, go to the last couple of weeks at our website, uh, www.facTennessee.com org facTennessee.org and you can read those. One of them is an open letter to the clergy and to church leaders about the need for discipleship in this area. So so how are we to think through this? Because to be honest, I get really, really agitated. Some of my listeners probably know because they they deal with me in a in an environment other than the podcast how frustrated that I can get. So what I'm going to do today, what I promised to do last week, and then we'll return to the normal flow of things, is look at Psalm 37, because it was a great encouragement to me a couple of weeks ago. And I am going to try to put it in this context of government and law and social unrest and disorder. So if you have your Bibles, um, uh, you can turn to it. I'm reading from the New King James Version. If you don't, just listen. But it begins this way, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. So there are two things here. One is don't fret 
And two, when you see them succeeding, when you see that, that they've got the upper hand, when you see that they control all the levers of power that they seem to be doing well, then don't become envious of them. Don't begin to think, well, if I give a little ground here, or maybe if I stop talking about that over here, then maybe I can share in some of this without having to uh, you know, lose too much. So there are two commands. Don't fret and don't become envious because if you're envious, you will begin to compromise. And to be honest, there is so much compromise in our churches and among our church leaders that it, that it is hard for me to fathom. You have to wonder what the prophets like Jeremiah and Amos would say to the church today in general. So he says, don't fret about it. Don't be envious about it. Now, I'm going to skip the, the, the next, well, I'm not going to skip the next verse. It says, they'll soon be cut down like the grass and where there's the green herb. Now, we might sit here and say, well, I don't see it happening. But friends, it happens every day when the wicked die. Their expectation, as the psalmist says, comes to an end. And it will ultimately come to an end or increasingly come to an end over the course of generations, or God is not faithful to himself and the desires that he expressed in, in Genesis chapter 1, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God because people across the earth would be filled with the knowledge of God. When he talks in the Psalms and in Hosea, I, I, I want the earth to be covered like the sea with the knowledge of the glory of God. We've, we've lost that eschatology, and I've talked about that. In some of my previous episodes, I think in the futility, I, I spent a couple of weeks on the issues of eschatology. And the eschatology of today is pathetic. The kingdom of God is to shrink, shrivel, grow, and be defeated. Now, I don't, I don't know that I see that anywhere. I see that there's opposition, but the opposition strengthens and grows the church. I, I mean, that's how the church first grew, right? Why would we expect that the patterns of God would change and that he gave up on what he, he wanted to do that he said so repeatedly? And what's ironic is many of the literalists in our churches give no literal interpretation to saying, well, that must be what God wants to do. And though I don't see it today because I'm fretting over evildoers and I'm envious of them, that's what he's doing. And like Abraham, as it speaks of, I think it's in Hebrews 9 or 11, he saw something. He saw a city whose builder was God and its foundations were God. Did he see the completion of it? No, but he had a vision for it. And that vision is gone today because we get so caught up in being fretful of the evildoers and responding to them and being envious of the workers of iniquity. But they come to their end every day as they die. And they will come to a final and complete end on the day of final judgment. So the remedy to that is found in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Now, I want to get to the next verse too, but let me comment here. It says, trust in the Lord. Now, you can't trust in the Lord and therefore not fret or become envious if you don't know who he is. And, and I've never been in a church ever in my life where the pastor would take a Sunday morning and do a series on the doctrine of God. Who is God? Now, it, bits and pieces of it may be intertwined in some expository preaching where we hear, oh, God of providence, oh, okay, I don't, but I really don't know what that means. Could you connect that to me? Uh, yeah, God's sovereign, God's providence. 
Well, one of the things I want to do on this program, and I hope I'm doing, I hope I did it in the last series, is, is as a look at the development of the common law. Look what God was doing from the 11th century to the time of the Puritan Revolution and what took place in the 17th century. Do you see the hand of God in that? And, and if not, why do you not see the hand of God? Do you not see the revelation of God's providence and all the things that God is in that work over those centuries? I mean, if we would meditate upon those things, then we would know, as it says in the next part of verse 3, what good we are to do. I, I was just really convicted last week as I listened to one of my favorite podcasts, and I would encourage you all to listen to it. It's called Chalk Knox Unplugged. It's on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. It's Chuck Knox and, and uh, a guy named Jason Farley. And there was an episode. I encourage you to listen to it. It's about two hours, but it's worth it. Just listen to it on the car while you're mowing the yard or raking leaves or, you know, whatever it is. But they were talking about the forgotten reformation. And as I thought of that, and I thought of it in the context of what I've shared with you all, the reformation brought changes in law and government that we now today enjoy and have no idea why, where they came from, or how it was the work of God. We have forgotten. And how often in the scripture are we told, remember, 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 and we've forgotten, and our leadership is forgotten. I mean, I was pointing out to some people the other day that don't like the idea of bringing politics in the church. Now, this was happened to be a people in the Reformed tradition, and I said, you understand that, that Kuiper went to Princeton Seminary Presbyterian Seminary in 1898 to give lectures on Calvinism, which you would think would be reformed, right? I said, did you know that chapter 3 is on Calvinism and politics? He uses that word. Now, I had to posit to this person. So, was Kuyper, who, who in his final speech, I think it's chapter 5, exhorted the Princeton seminarians to restore a full and vibrant reform theology, and obviously part of that vibrant, new, reformed, moving forward Calvinism that he was exhorting them to pursue included an understanding of the relationship of reformed theology to the state, to government, and how it affected, as he says throughout the chapter, civil liberty. You want to know why we've lost civil liberty? is because we've lost its foundations. And not only have we lost the foundations, the church has refused to lay them. They think that's politics. That's, that's our problem. So, so Kuiper's message went completely unheeded to the leading theological think tank of the day. And we wonder why we're in the mess we're in. So, see, it's hard to trust in the Lord when you, when you don't really know who He is and what He's done. We're, we're exhorted to study the works of God, and we think, well, that must be um, the stories in the Old Testament and uh, New Testament, but let's just focus on Jesus' life. Yeah, that's the only one that's really important. And then, uh, you know, we look up in the stars and we say, wow, that's really cool. So, that's all we really need to know about God. Well, you're not going to trust in him if that's maybe all that you know, if you haven't seen the ongoing works of God in bringing all things under the feet of Jesus, where we find in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that's the object of Christ. And when that's done, he'll turn everything back over to the Father, and God will be in all and 
and, and in all things, and in all things will be in God. He will have united heaven and earth, Ephesians chapter 1. And he says, so do good. Well, we have no instruction on what pursuing the good would be. We think in this area of government that doing the good means we need to elect more Republicans, we need to reelect people like Donald Trump, we need to get the levers of political power, and then we can shape the world the way we're supposed to shape it. That's the fault of Christian nationalism. It's not that we don't want our country to be Christian and, and Christianity to pervade all of our institutions. It's that we don't understand how God works because we don't really know who God is. And, and so we try to do it by man's wisdom and man's efforts and we conform to the world so we don't know how to even do the good. He says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Now let me comment there dwell in the land. In other words, don't be sitting here longing for some kind of rapture that I can get out of here because the earth is such a mess. It's so polluted. It is unredeemable. None of his institutions can be redeemed because God only saves souls and he doesn't save souls that the institutions would be reformed and, and restored and, and repaired and moved forward for the glory of God. Remember that we talked about that last week where, where, where the guy said, Machen said, you know, we really just need to focus on the church when Machen actually said, the institutions are supposed to be reformed. And part of the reason we don't think the institutions would be reformed because we're so Gnostic that we think only of the soul and flying away, biding our time. As again, Kuiper said, Protestants just wander aimlessly without direction, making no progress. That was in 1898. We've made progress. It's just been downhill. So we need to be feeding on his faithfulness. Well, would it be inappropriate for a church, for elders, for pastors, in trying to help people feed on his faithfulness to cover some of the material in, for instance, the book Law and Revolution by Harold Berman, Volume 2, the subtitle of which is The Impact of the Protestant Reformations on the Western Legal Tradition. Sounds to me like a completely appropriate topic, but we'll never cover it in church. You know, it was never covered in any church I was in. It's never probably even thought it would be important for anybody to know it. And of course, if our leaders don't know it, they sure aren't going to think it's important to tell the people in the pews about. And I know I'm sounding probably fretful here, but I'm trying to help us understand in a way the nature of our problem and to say, hey, you gotta, you got to dish some of the stuff you've been ta taught. you got to understand, I am here to dwell in the land and I'm to figure out how to do the good and I'm to dwell on his faithfulness and I need to learn more than what I'm getting, the pablum that may be coming through your church. Or otherwise, you'll just grow fat on the, the fat content of the pablum that, that throughout Scripture it says, hey, you should be moving on beyond milk at this point. You, sh you should be maturing in your application of the basic theology that, that you've learned through the Scripture and now continuing and making progress with it. I mean, remember when I talked about that in, in, uh, in the last series on futility, and I was quoting from Bobink, how he said, look, once this stuff from the Old Testament to the crucifixion of Christ and then the works of the apostles and Acts and the letters were written, it was now for the people of God to instantiate all of that in, in every area of life. It was an ongoing work, but it was in every area of life. And then he says this, and this is how I want to close because it ties back into the very first part about not fretting and being anxious, about knowing the good, as opposed to just thinking, how do we stop the bad? In verse 4, the psalmist says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he 
shall give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. I remember probably 20 years ago, sitting in the living room in my home at that time on Signal Mountain, talking with a friend about God giving us the desires of our heart. And was it, and, and we were discussing in my own ignorance at the time that, well, I have certain desires and God says he wants to give those to me. But then, you know, I hadn't thought of the wickedness of my desires, my inability to know what I actually maybe should desire. See, that's, that's part of what Luther began to preach and Calvin and John Owen and all these others is that you don't understand how short you fall of the glory of God, how, how much higher his ways are than your ways, how pure he is compared to your impurity. So I don't exist for me to have desires for God to fulfill. That's a lot of the prosperity preaching in here. What I've come to see is that when you delight yourself in the Lord, your delights will become his delights. He will work in you both to will and then to do his good pleasure, and you will find great joy in it. It will not be an imposition of duties in which your heart no longer takes delight, but you will, like the psalmist said in chapter 37, I delight to do your will because your law is written in my heart. And then he says, yes, 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 yes. Ah, oh, I've placed that desire there and I will give it to you. And then this builds on that. Commit your way to the Lord. Okay, Lord, give me these desires. Give me the desires you want. Plant them in me. And it says, trust in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Isn't it wonderful to know that when God gives us a burning affection and desire for something, according to what we know is true in his word, and we can say, yes, this is a, a good desire. He'll do it. He'll bring it to pass. That's why we don't have to fret or be envious. Now, I, I want to I close with a few reflections from John Owen. They actually come from uh, his exposition of Psalm 130, but they are so good and pertinent because it also has to do this question of waiting on the Lord and trusting in him and coming to know who the Lord is. And so this is what he says. The proper object of a sin-distressed soul's waiting and expectation is God himself as revealed in Christ. Now, why did he add as revealed in Christ? Because the in Christ, the revelation in Christ, distinguishes the God that the Christian worships from all other understandings of the divine. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that we've beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ. But Owen then goes on and says that if our object when distressed is to wait on God himself as revealed in Christ, then he says we must do two things. Show in what sense God himself is the object of the waiting of the soul. That's what he's going to talk about. And how it appears from that that waiting is a necessary duty. Now, I'll confess to y'all, I normally thought of waiting on God as, you know, I read the Bible, I say my prayers, I go about my business, and somehow God's just going to work things out, you know, and so I'll just wait until, you know, I no longer desire to do the wrong thing, or 
uh, all the pieces fall into place or whatever else. That was just waiting. It was an inactive thing. But Owen makes it clear that waiting on God is a very active thing. And, and so as he speaks of this question of waiting on God, he said, we are to, to consider God's being, the absolute and essential properties of his nature. Now stop and think a moment. If you've not spent time in theological reflection on the attributes of God and his nature, then this waiting will do you no good, nor will it encourage your heart so that you're not anxious or envious. He says the second thing is, we need to consider the attributes of his nature with respect to his dealings with us, which are suited, he said, his dealings with us, to beget in us affections and frame a spirit compliant with the duty proposed. I think it was Augustine who said, command what you will, then grant what you command. That's what Owen is talking about. Now, when he says here that we are to consider God's essential properties, here's what he says. He says we should consider, and then he goes on to, to talk briefly about these things, God's eternity. We know that God is eternal, but what are the implications of that? What does that communicate to us about how we look at what it means to do good. He says, look at the immensity of his essence and his omnipresence. He says, thoughts of God's holiness, his infinite self-purity of his eternal immense being. He says, consider the glorious majesty as the ruler of the world. It's good to consider instances that God has given of his infinite greatness, power, majesty, and glory. See, that's what I'm trying to give you all as I talk about the development of the Western legal tradition over a you know, six, seven hundred year period. Those are the things that he says constitute waiting, not waiting as in, I'm going to stay at the house and see if anybody rings the doorbell. Because it's as we, we think on these things, as we meditate upon them, he will begin to give us delights. He will begin to work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. And, and then he says, and I'm not going to give you this will to do something, David, and then leave you hanging dependent upon your own ability to do it. I will equip you and I will do it in you. What kind of God is there that's like this? Actually, I think it's the psalmist says, maybe it's in Isaiah, who, who serves his own people. And he serves us as we wait on him and come to know him and allow him to show us the good we need to be doing as we dwell in the land, as we put away the thoughts that I'm just muddling through, doing the best I can, not building anything, I'm just waiting to get out of here. You see what begins to happen. I'll quote one last thing then as I close. This is from Owen's Meditation and Discourses on the Glory of God. You can find this online if you just Google it. It, it may be called The Glory of Christ. Sometimes people short, shorten the title. I'll try to provide links to the materials I've talked to today because they are online um, if I can figure out the technology. But let me read what Owen here says to tie things up. It is a woeful kind of life when men scramble for poor, perishing reliefs in their distresses. Isn't that what we do with government? Give me a government check. 
have the government do this, have the government do that. I just need more money, I, you know, just going on and on. Scrambling for poor perishing relief in their distress. This is the universal remedy and cure, the only balm for all our diseases. And what he's referring to there is the title of his book, Reflecting and Meditating on the Glory of Christ. He continues, whatever presses, urges, perplexes, if we can but retreat in our minds into a view of this glory and to due consideration of our own interest therein, comfort and supportment will be added and administered to us. Wicked men in their distress, which sometimes overtake even them also, are like a troubled sea that cannot rest. Others are heartless and despond, not without secret discontent at the wise disposals of divine providence, especially when they look on the better condition, as they suppose, of others. You see, that, that's Psalm 37, verse 1. You're fretting, you become disconsolate, or you become envious. And the best of us, Owen says, are all apt to wax faint and weary when these things press upon us in an unusual manner, as I think is happening now, and under their long continuance, which is happening now, without a prospect of relief, which I think is happening now. This is the stronghold which such prisoners of hope are to turn themselves unto. In this contemplation of the glory of Christ, they will find rest unto their souls. And it is then that we will know what to do as we dwell in the land. Well, thank you for listening today. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. And I look forward to being with you again next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.